You may be seated and be turning to Romans chapter 11, where we will be picking up there in verse 11 today. While you're turning there, you will need your Bible, and you will need to have your eyes on this text today, because we're going to be covering a big chunk today of text, and this is one of the most challenging chapters in all of Paul's writing. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in talking about Brother Paul in Second Peter 3.16 said, Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And this is definitely one of those passages that are hard to understand. And so you'll need to be focused and use your ears, use your eyes, and stir yourself up to pay attention as we go through this. A little bit of an introduction before I even read that text this morning. Um, the theme of Romans is... The just shall live by faith. And so everything in this letter is supporting that proposition. The just shall live by faith. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's the reason why we need faith, why we need the gift of faith and the gift of righteousness. We learn in this letter also that believers are free from the penalty of sin. And they're free from the power of sin, but they're not yet free from the presence of sin. And that is what Paul taught us in chapters 7, 6, and 7. And 8, he teaches that all of those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, born-again believers, will walk after the Spirit in obedience and faith, and that nothing can ever separate them from the love of Christ. But as we enter into chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul goes up to Mount Everest of doctrine. And he really goes up to 20,000 feet and he's talking about a big picture of what God is doing in history. And we have here the doctrines that we call the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. And we also have it clearly taught in 9, 10, 11 that you are responsible to hear this message today and respond to it in obedience and faith. So God is sovereign in salvation, includes the doctrine of election, predestination, also includes the doctrine that God passes by some and leaves them in their sin. And that we as Human beings are responsible to hear this message that God is speaking to you today. This is the technology that God has designed to communicate to you. It's not as flashy as screens and Wi-Fi and computers and all that stuff. But God has ordained that the way He communicates to you is through the Word of Truth and through the preaching of the Word in the assembly of the saints here together. And He will give you a nugget today. As I said, this is a difficult passage, but He's going to speak to you today through this. I can't do that, but He can. The Holy Spirit's here in the room. He's going to communicate to you today through these texts as we go through these challenging Scriptures. So last time, as we began in chapter 11, I talked to you about... I really focused on you. Now, he's always talking about believers and unbelievers in all of these texts. It's the, the text is the dividing line between those who believe and those who don't. But the beloved elect are never cast off. Never cast off. Never 
Though cast down, you'll never be destroyed. There's always at this present time a remnant according to the election of grace. And the means of religion which are meant for our good, for those who refuse this message, it turns out to be a curse to them. As we read from David last time, said, let their table become a snare unto them. And we should read verse 33 because what we're going through today, Paul is going to sum it up in verse 33 down at the bottom of this chapter. So if you look at verse 33 there in your Bible, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. As we read through this day, that's, that's the thing that will come to your mind is why did He do it this way? Well, I don't know because... His wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable. His judgments, we can't find them out. But He's communicating to us today in this message what He's doing in history. And He wants you to know that. He wants you to understand what He's doing in history. So let's read verses 11 down through 25. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, Boast not against the branches, but if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root you. You will say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not you. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also shall be cut off, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted in unto their own olive tree? For I, would not, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So this passage here, Paul is speaking to not, ma- not individuals and not 
entirely about nations, but he's speaking of masses of Gentiles and masses of Jews. And that's the difficulty of this passage is when you go through there and you look at the pronouns, who's he talking about here? And is he talking about Israel, the nation of Israel? Is he talking about spiritual Israel? And those are some of the challenges. So I've tried to read through a lot of commentaries this week, and I'll tell you one commentary said there were six different ways of looking at this parable of the branches and all. I'm going to give you one. And uh, we'll leave some of the finer things to the theologians and hopefully bring some things out today that will help encourage you and help you to praise God that He has opened the door to Gentiles. So you stand by faith in this present time and rejoice to know the mercy of God toward you during the time of the Gentiles. And you look forward to the day when the door is reopened to the Jews. So when you see this great love that is upon you, believer, and you know it in your mind and your heart, your response will be the response of a loving child to a father, and you will rejoice to know that God has revealed to you the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so he's continuing this theme of God's sovereignty and responsibility here, and he's got four questions and four answers. We're just going to look at the four questions and the four answers today. And those questions are in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 15, and verse 24. So beginning with the first question. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? That's the first question we have. In the, and the answer is what? God forbid that, that they should fall there has the idea of a permanent severing and a cutting off of every single one. So God's rejection of Israel as a nation was not a final, is not a final rejection of Jewish people. And remember, Paul said in the first of this chapter, what? I'm a Jew. I believe. There's a remnant. There's always been a remnant. And so there's a fundamental principle that he has taught us and continues through this chapter that there's always a remnant according to the election of grace that will believe amongst Jewish people and Gentile people. So God's purpose was to move from Israel as a nation to the salvation of Gentile nations. We see this here. He says he's cut them off so that now the Gentile nations might be brought in. And this is one of those places where you say, what is he doing there? You mean he cut them off so that we might be saved? How is it possible to understand God's ways? Again, God's ways are past finding out. He went from one man in Abraham to the twelve tribes to Jesus Christ being born through all the prophets. He sent the word of God through this nation. He sent prophets through this nation. God protected this nation. They were the chosen people of God. And yet now, back in 70 AD, there was a finality in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that they were cut off for a time. For a time.
And he says he's done this to provoke them to jealousy. I spoke just a little about that on Wednesday night, but whenever the the Jewish people and anyone sees someone be redeemed from tragedy, from sin, from destruction, from unhappiness, from misery, and their life just turns around radically, and that they are filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is to provoke others to jealousy. To ask you a question, how did that happen? How is it you're able to live with such joy and peace in the midst of knowing there's something wrong with your child or something going on in your family or someone's dying of cancer? How are you able to continue to live in the face of that? It's to provoke people to jealousy, to want to know what's your secret. What's your secret? I see also in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5, God's instruction to wives of unbelieving husbands, this same principle. So let's just look at that a second. We are to provoke others to jealousy. God has not cut them off entirely, the Jewish people. We're to live in such a way that they would be jealous. In 1 Peter 3, he says, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husband. I'm going to paraphrase this, okay? Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. There is to be a way of our living that is speaking to people without words. A power in the way that we live where they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. He goes on to tell the wives there, don't be concerned about the outward beauty, but be concerned about the inward beauty. That's a principle here. So we're to make others jealous by the way that we live. Paul understands this. Through the fall of the Israelites, God had brought salvation to you to provoke them to jealousy. He's already said this back in Romans ten nineteen, whenever Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. So, brothers and sisters, you should live amazed and thankful that Father God would blind His own chosen people for a time during this present time, the time of the Gentiles, so that you might hear the gospel and believe. Imagine what had happened if that hadn't. And that if He would only stuck with Israel, if salvation only came through Israel and we were Gentile nations. Well, we can look in the Old Testament and see what happens to Gentile nations outside of Christ. So the second question He comes to, the first question there is, has God cut them off entirely? No, He has not. He's done this during this present time to provoke them to jealousy by seeing God's mercy being poured out on Gentiles. Second question, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He will say this twice, how much more? And so I went through and I looked up each one of those three words. And actually in the Greek, there's only two words there. It's how and much more. And so that has the idea of a degree of greatness. 
If during this current time, God has cast them off. I told you last time that only 2% of Israel, demographically, says that they are Christian. Only 2%. He's speaking here of something that's to a degree that's a lot more than 2%. He says, how much more their fullness... If the fall of them be the riches of the world because they have fallen into unbelief and hardened, God has hardened them during this present time so that we might be filled with joy and blessings and glory, there's going to come a day, I think this is pointing forward, how much more their fullness. There's going to be a degree of greatness in revival amongst Jews that are come to faith in Christ. It's going to be so amazing. And I think he uses more languages. We'll go down there where you're going to see that. Because he uses the same phrase again. How much more? There is a view on this where they don't believe there's any kind of a future big revival that's going to take place in Israel. I don't see how you can take how much more and say 2% meets how much more. There's a degree of greatness here in the Jews being filled with joy at seeing what's happened among you, Gentiles, that is coming. Now, I also say I'll be studying this for hopefully another 10 or 20 years, and I'm going to learn more about this passage. I'm going to have to do some repenting. But I'll tell you, the way I see it is this is talking about a future restoration of Israel, not the nation. I'm talking about revival amongst Jewish people to come to see Jesus as Christ. He goes on here and says, For I speak to you Gentiles, in verse 13, Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Imagine the apostle Paul before the road to Damascus, if somebody came to him and said, Hey, I got a job offer for you. You're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What would Apostle Paul said at that time? Gentile dogs? I would never take a job being a spiritual leader to Gentile dogs. They're not the chosen people. But here he says, Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Paul now has come to see God's plan and what he's doing in history. And he wants you to understand his plan and what he's doing in history. And Paul knew that there was going to come a time where this was going to happen. He's telling us about it. And now he says... I get to go and take this glorious gospel to the Gentiles and I know that some of my people are going to believe because they're going to see God's goodness and grace to the Gentiles. And he says that in verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation those which are my flesh and might save some of them. He knew some of them would believe. He believed. There were other Jews that believed. There were Jewish Christians in this Roman church in Rome that were believers that he's writing to now. And he knew also that there would come a day that this had to take place first. That this rolling out of the gospel to Gentiles had to take place first and then there was going to be this upswelling within the Jewish people where they would see Messiah in mass finally. And he looked forward to that, but he knew this had to happen first. And so Paul 
What does he say? I, I, I labored more than all the other apostles. Paul has this motivation of understanding God's plan in history and what he's doing. That should also motivate you. That the door is open now. Now is the day of salvation. We live in the age of opportunity to the Gentile nations. Or you could just say to nations, to the nations outside of Israel, the ethnos outside of Israel. So he understood this purpose. We see this also in Paul's teachings in Ephesians. So Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. Let's look at a couple of those texts right quick. Ephesians 2.11. He says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So Paul said, you need to remember, believer, and in time past you were just the uncircumcised Philistines. And that's what you were called by the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So the Jews called you the uncircumcised. There was this division between Jews and Gentiles. They were the chosen people, you were not. That at that time you were without Christ. Ephesians 2.12 At that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. That was your condition before God did this in time and opened the door so that you might hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. And in verse 13, he says, But now, that age had started when he was writing this letter to the Ephesians. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down that middle wall of partition between us. There's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's the, you were adopted, and when you were born again, you became a Jew. We're all one now. One of the things, I've watched a couple of services of these Jewish Christian Messianic churches, they call them. The one red flag that bothers me when I have listened to some of those messages is that they still draw a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And they still require their congregations to hold to the eating practices in the Old Testament. Paul said, we're both one. That's been broken down, that little middle wall of partition. He goes on the next chapter and begins right off at the top there in Ephesians 3 and says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, to who? To you Gentiles, because he's the apostle of the Gentiles. He said, if you've heard of the dispensation of grace which is given to me to you. God has given me grace. This is the only way you're going to escape the wrath to come. To escape your fears of the world or fears of tomorrow. You can escape all of that through Christ. If you've heard of that dispensation of grace which is given to me towards you, how that by revelation he made known Unto me the mystery. Everybody loves a mystery. 90% of all programs on TV are mysteries. 
We love mysteries. This is the greatest mystery of all. How's God going to save humanity? And out of humanity, how's God going to save Gentiles who are not part of the chosen people? They weren't part of the history of being given the prophets and the Word of God. How's God going to do that? That mystery, Paul says, here is given to me and I'm giving it to you now. He says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to you, but now it's revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. You are adopted into that family, believer. And He wants you to know that. God wants you to know about the mystery, about what He's doing in the world in history. Again, remember, 9, 10, 11 of Romans are 20,000 foot. He's giving you the big picture of history so that you might understand God's in control. He's got this. It's been planned. You don't have to worry about what's going on in the world today. You are blessed beyond measure to live at this time in history. And have the door open to you through the gospel. All the shadows and types of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you live at a time where you can read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit is showing you that. To this day in the synagogue, the veil is upon the eyes of most Jewish people. Do you know, I heard this week, I was listening to something where it says that they refused to allow Isaiah 53 to be read in the synagogue. You know why? Because they know that's Christ and they hate it and they don't want Christ to be seen. And you're blessed beyond measure that you see what He is doing. The Holy Spirit is moving among the nations. But there's going to come a day when there's going to be a great revival among the genetic descendants of Abraham. And when that happens, we're going to rejoice. So you should live in great joy knowing the riches of Christ that are bestowed upon you. That's one point you need to understand as this message. You need to live in great joy knowing the riches of Christ that are bestowed upon you and live in such a way to provoke others to love Christ and worship Him. We should be worshiping Christ and so filled with joy that it would be drawing others in. That they would be jealous. So how much more their fullness? And he moves to the third question in verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? The casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. This great mystery. Why did it have to happen that way? I don't know. His ways are beyond finding out. But this is the way he did it, and this is what he's telling us. They were cast away so that you could be reconciled. So that you could have... The, the meaning of that word reconcile means an adjustment of a difference. It has the idea of an accountant going into a ledger and adjusting a difference. So you, you were born with a great debt. Spiritually... That could not be paid. And this reconciliation that's made through the blood of Christ means that God has balanced your ledger. Christ has paid your debt. And He has restored you to favor with the Father. So 
we are reconciled and put back into favor with this Father. The reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Receiving of who? Of Jewish peoples. What shall the receiving of them be? It shall be, this word receiving here is used to talk about receiving into the kingdom of God, of which most of them are not yet entered. The eternal kingdom. This life from the dead here is not, as I understand it, and looking through commentaries, that's not talking about resurrection there. That's talking about, again, something that's going to happen that we may live long enough to see. Maybe it's already started. We're hearing some news of conversions of Jews in this this, uh, one Israel that I passed out some videos about some of the things that are going on in Israel. Maybe it's already beginning. And whenever we see more than 2%, imagine if it went from 2% to 98% within six months. Wouldn't that be glorious? I think of the Great Awakening back in the 1700s when waves of the Holy Spirit moved across this land. We're still living off the fumes of the Great Awakening in this country. That's the only thing keeping this house of cards together is that grace and mercy of God that grounded this country in truth. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? That will be a glorious day. And we should pray for it and hope for it. Paul now moves to an illustration that they were familiar with, and we are too as readers of Scriptures. Anytime the Scripture begins to use plants as illustrations, you've got to go back to the parable of the sower and Hebrews chapter 6. Because those who are in Christ bear fruit, Those who are not in Christ are dead branches and they're taken out of what they appear to be a part of. They're not part of it, really. They appear to be part of the tree, but it's a dead branch, so they're not connected to the root. Those dead branches are pruned out and thrown into the fire and burned, which is eternal judgment. And that's nothing more what he's talking about here. It's the same type of illustration beginning in verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you be a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So first fruit, go back to the Old Testament. The Jews were familiar with this. What did they do with the first fruits? They went out and they harvested their corn and Corn, whenever you've got a big field of corn, you're going to have some ears that ripen first. And the other ones will take another day or a week or two. And so the first fruits, which was considered to be the best, the sweetest, was taken from the trees or the plants, and it was taken to the temple, and it was given to the Lord. Jesus Christ is called the first fruits of resurrection. And so he's using this illustration. The lump is also holy. There was also this, this lump of bread that was given as the first fruit of the dough. And then given this illustration talking about Israel. Israel came through time. There was the remnant, but there were a lot of branches that were in the institution of Israel that were not in Christ. And they were broken off. In fact, as we see to this day, If you think about that over the last 2,000 years, 
how many generations of Jews have lived and died and not known Christ and are ordained to eternal torment. 2,000 years of generations where only about 2% or the remnant has been saved and delivered. Those that are in Christ, it says here, partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Christ is the olive tree. He's the green tree. And so we see that God is moving towards a future resurrection, so to speak, where much of the Jewish people will come to faith. We have to remember, um, there are some that say that God was done with the Jewish people back in 78 day entirely, but I think if we go back and look at the promises made to like Abraham in Genesis 17:7, we have to understand God promised that some of Abraham's seed that he would always have a seed amongst Jewish people. I believe that's what this is saying here in Genesis 17:7. He says, "I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you." I think that promise is still being kept. There's a remnant of Jews that are still believers and haven't. But I think there's going to be a glorious, wonderful thing happen. You also are a first fruit unto Christ. You are a first fruit among Gentiles. James 1 says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So you should rejoice, Gentile believer, that knowing that you were dead and a wild olive tree in this illustration here is an olive tree that doesn't bear fruit. There's the idea you didn't bring anything to the table. The Jews brought the law, the prophets, the word of God. What did you bring? You didn't bring nothing. Knowing that you were dead and not bringing any fruit, you didn't bring anything to the table. You don't even have a genealogy you can look at. And by a mere act of mercy, a free gift, you were grafted into Christ. Isn't that glorious to think about? And that, will, that would and should keep you from boasting, which is what he goes into next in this illustration. He said, don't boast against the branches. But if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root thee. You will say then that the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, why were they broken off? Because of unbelief. Verse 20 centers us again in chapter 11 on the theme of the Romans letter. The just shall live by faith. They were broken off because they didn't have faith. You stand by faith. So don't be high-minded but fear. Don't be arrogant. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest He spare not you. So God is putting some warnings in here. I've talked about warnings before. God has warnings in Hebrews 6. There are warnings in many other... Jesus warned many times believers. So the warnings are for you. Because the child will hear the warnings and obey the Father. We see here that there's a tendency, it seems, for people whenever they start getting blessings from God 
that they start boasting against the branches, the nation of Israel. Anti-Semitism. Did y'all see that? Those, I'm going to call them idiots. Those idiots down at Florida this week of the Nazis that were standing up and saying all these awful things about Jewish people. I mean, you see things like that and you think, really? I was looking at banned books one week on Amazon and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going around about, well, Amazon's banning Christian people. Mostly they really don't. I looked at their banned book list. The top four books that were banned on Amazon are anti-Semitic books that are claiming the Holocaust never happened. Anti-Semitism. What ugliness for Gentiles to become anti-Semitic, which means to hate Jews, to speak against Jews. There was even a report released by the Roman Catholic Church this past week claiming that they weren't anti-Semitic during the time of the slaughter of the Jews in the Holocaust. And you've got to wonder why they're spending so much ink denying it. Why don't they just confess it, repent of it, and move on? Uh, It was the Roman Catholic Church that helped get many of the Nazis out of Europe into South America. That's just an example how Gentile institutions become anti-Semitic, lifting up in pride and thinking they're something when they're not. So we need to be aware of that because we can be prone to that. I mean, when you see what they did to Christ, uh, they murdered him. They murdered an innocent man. How do we respond to that? We've got to look at the Word and just say, that's what, see what God is doing in history and what He communicates to us and not go beyond that. We should never be that way. We should always be grateful that we received the Word of God through the Jewish people and that they were so diligent to have the scribes to copy and transcribe the manuscripts and to count every jot and tittle so that we might have the very Word of God in our hands. We should be grateful that God sent prophets to them, that we have this history of the Old Testament. We should be grateful for all that because it helps us to see how God was always pointing to Christ, that all of those things were teaching about Christ. And we sit in this position 2,000 years after Christ and have the ability of looking back and saying, Wow! Isn't this wonderful that God did send the Redeemer to earth? And so we should stand by faith, not be high-minded. That we should be careful. We should be careful. Because even today within Gentile churches, there are branches. And you go back to the parable of the sower, you can go back to Matthew 13 where there's going to come a day where there are those who appear to be part who aren't bearing any fruit that are going to be taken away. Christ said this in Matthew 13, 38. He said, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. They're all in the same field. They're all in the same organization. The visible church... But this is what's going to happen. And as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. 
that separation is taking place now. And there's going to come a final separation at the end of the age where all of those who profess Christ but don't possess Christ, who are not in the root of the matter, they're not grafted into the root of the green olive tree, will be separated. But remember, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear that you have received this seed, the Word of God. Some believe and some believe not. There is no third party there. Some believe, some believe not. This great truth of understanding this will help us, keep us from boasting and anti-Semitism. He goes into verse 22 now and says, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. On them which fail severity but toward thee goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you shall be cut off. Where God's goodness abides upon His beloved, they know it and they continue in faith and obedience. He says, Behold, at the first of this verse. I I did a message on this some time back. It needs a whole message and maybe you go back and listen to that. I don't have time to do a whole message just on this verse, but behold the goodness and severity of God. This is 9, 10, and 11 summed up in that one verse. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. There's always a remnant according to the election of grace. God has vessels of wrath fitted to destruction so that He might be glorified in their destruction and He might be glorified in the saving of the the beloved. That's the goodness and the severity of God. The behold there is an imperative. It means pay attention to what God is doing. This is serious business. This is eternal business. Pay attention to what He's doing in history today and His goodness towards you and His severity of those who do not continue in the faith. Severity means sharpness, roughness, and rigor. Consider, we live in the time when the gospel is in open to the Gentiles. Do you know what it was like before? The thousands of years prior to the coming of Christ for Gentiles? If you look in Joshua and Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 20, this is what happened to Gentiles. But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And we read when Joshua went in, in Joshua 10 it says, And Joshua did what God had told him. They were exterminated. This is genocide. How do we understand that today? Behold the goodness and the severity of God. God destroyed them because of the things they were doing in Leviticus 18, which was mentioned last Sunday. All of the evil practices. God destroyed them because He chose to. And He commanded Israel to do it. And it wasn't wrong for them to go in there and destroy them. They were doing it under the command of God. 
But now, we're on the other side of that. The gospel's open to us. We're not receiving severity. We're receiving goodness. And the 2,000 years since Christ came, the nations are receiving goodness as the gospel is being translated. Every year, more and more languages are being translated. The book is translated so that they might read it. So behold, the goodness and severity of God. And it says here, if you continue in His goodness. Again, I point out to you, if is a conditional particle. It's conditional upon you continuing in His goodness. How are we to understand that? Well, Charles Hodges has something I like. So listen to this. He who purposes the end, God purposed the end of all things. He also purposes the means. And He brings about the end by securing the use of the means. So as He has assuredly ordained the end for you, believer, He's also ordaining means that will be effectual like the preaching today, like you're reading the Word today, like discipline when you need it. Correction. He's going to send you enough thorns in your life to keep you from being puffed up and arrogant. Your end is purposed, believer in Jesus Christ. And it has been purposed that by faith, obedience, warnings, godly fear, that you will be secured to the end. You will continue in His goodness if you're a believer. You will. You don't have to be afraid of being cut off. Just continue in His goodness. Continue in faith. And God's severity is also a means to keep you on the narrow way. Because He says here, beware, lest you also be cut off. Beware. So we should respond to that as rational creatures. You're a rational creature made in God's image to be able to think And to hear this communication through this technology of preaching that God has ordained, to hear these words today in this room and to pay attention to them and understand what God is doing and thereby continue in His goodness by obedience and faith. This should cause us to respond in gratitude and fear, should it not? Gratitude that we live in this time where the door is open to us. And fear when we see God's severity and how some have not. God has not cast away the Jewish people entirely. The salvation of the nations will lead to even more joy for the Jews when they come to believe. There will come a day when things will change again. We live in the time, things change. Many people, I know there are some commentators that say, no, everything's going to continue just like it is now. A little remnant of Jews, a little remnant of Gentiles in the world continuing till the end. But didn't the Jews think nothing was going to change 2,000 years ago? I mean, in fact, their murdering of Christ is because they didn't want it to change. He was saying, the temple's going to be destroyed down, destroyed, this nation's going to be destroyed. He communicated those things. They knew what he was saying, and they thought if we could just kill the son of the vineyard owner, we'll own the vineyard. That's not what happened. He came and cast them out. And he gave it to another. You are now responsible for the vineyard, believer. You are now responsible for the vineyard.
So continue in the faith. And then in verse 23 it says, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, God shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more? You see, that's the second time he says that. This is to a greater degree. How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? How much more shall Jews who do have the... They still hold to a lot of the traditions. It's amazing how much they hold to the, to the traditions. Have you ever seen a nation that was dispersed for 2,000 years and then in 1948, 47, 48, came back into their land? That's unprecedented. That's never happened. Where is there a people group in the world where they are always hyphenated? American Jews, German Jews, Russian Jews. I don't know of another group that is, maintains their identity no matter where they have gone. So something is unique about these people. We need to pay attention to that. And since 1947, there has been a mass migration of Jews back to Israel. A lot of them coming out of Russia and through those countries up there. So how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted? It looked like God's preparing them for something. I think we have to hope to see that. If you look right here, there's a future tense verb in 23. It says, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. That's future tense. That's got to be talking about something in the future, something wonderful. Where the blindness is taken away and they are able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. You remember when God told Moses, I'm going to kill them all and I'm just going to raise up some seed from you because they're so stiff-necked and rebellious. And Moses said, but God, then people will say that you weren't able to save this people. Can't you see in the future there's going to come a day when there's going to be so many Jews to come to see the Messiah that everybody, nobody's going to be able to say that. So there's a hope and a longing and anticipation, I believe, in these four questions. Paul is, has a hope within him of an anticipation of looking forward to what God is doing in history during the times of the Gentiles and a future hope and anticipation that they will be grafted in again. And we should be praying for that, shouldn't we? He goes on in verse 25, just to wrap this up. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Until. When is that time going to be? I don't know. But he wants you to know what's going on in the world. He wants you to understand this mystery of what He's doing. He wants you to understand your time is now. Now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, it might be over. That door might close to Gentiles. Now is the time. Come in while you can. Believe on this Christ. Don't be proud in thinking that just because my dad's a deacon or my dad's a preacher or we've been primitive Baptists for six generations. That brings nothing to the table. Don't be proud.
come to Christ. You've got to have your own faith. You've got to trust Him yourself. And so God's purpose is to blind Israel and extend salvation to the nations until a certain time. You stand by faith in this present time and rejoice to know the mercy of God toward you during the times of the Gentiles. Rejoice. Be so grateful at the mercy you've been given. And look forward to the day when the door is opened and the multitude, many, many Jews, come to faith in Christ. These are hard truths that we have in 9, 10, and 11. Many people will reject the Scriptures when they read about the severity of God in there. They just reject it. Let me tell you what happens when a person hears about God's severity or God's plain teaching about sexual purity, one man and one woman for life. The old nature hates that. And what happens is, is every time, not every time, I'm saying amongst unbelievers and many people, sometimes in a believer, will rebel against that. What, when that happens, this is what's going on. You're lifting your mind above the word of truth. And you're making yourself God over God. That's why we've got to be humble. We've got to submit to the word of truth. The severity of God should teach us to be grateful to live humbly in sweet submission. So are you living in such a way, fathers, that it would make your wife jealous that you have such a close walk with God? Wives, are you living in such a way that it would make your husband jealous that you have such a close walk with Christ? Sisters, brothers, are you living in such a way that you're making your little brother jealous that, man, he, my, bro, my big brother is reading his Bible, he's praying, I can see that he loves Christ, he's following after him. I want to be more like that. Your neighbor, are you living like that? Are you just falling back in the rut? You know, we get so easily fall back in a rut. It's hard, you know, when you get a car in a rut, how hard it is to get it out of the rut? You've got to get out of the rut. We've got to get out of the rut. Sometimes we get in a rut with our family members that we've known for a long time. We get around them, we talk about the weather and just normal stuff. We've got to go in there prepared ahead of time thinking, what is one thing I could say if you know it's a family member who doesn't know Christ? What is there one thing I could do that might lift up the name of Christ to glorify them? Now is the time. The goodness of God is here now for us. Do you know Him? Have you come to Him? I am an ambassador for Christ. I'm here to persuade all who don't know Christ to trust Him, to love Him, to believe in Him, and to obey Him. I pray that the Holy Spirit would enable that to take place in your life and that you would live in such a way that others would be drawn to Him also. He's worthy. Oh, what a glorious Savior we have.